Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dalwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode, we're going to be tackling the topic of extreme subjects in gaming. But before we get into that, yeah, we've had a, a bit of an experiment this week. Well, indeed we did. Four of us sat down to play a game a couple of weeks back and we thought, hold on, we could get the microphones down. By we, you mean you. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> so about 20 minutes later, we'd set the microphones up. Yeah, and it didn't interfere with the play too much. Um, and I think I think we probably got something fairly usable out of it. But we haven't edited it. We, we haven't listened back to it yet. But um, this is our first tentative experiment at an actual play recording. I could just about see your hair over my pop filter when I, was, uh, when I had that thing rammed in front of my face. So... <laughs> Yeah, as I said, though, you know, we haven't decided whether it's good enough to release yet. Um, so th- this may never actually come out. But even if it doesn't, it was a useful learning experience. And it's going to tie in with an upcoming episode about the game My Life of Master. Mm. And also, Paul. What? When this goes out. Yeah. You'll be 50. Will I? I like how he's just tried to avoid any mention of this whatsoever. We ran through the show notes saying, yeah, what can we talk about? Yeah, moving on. <laughs> so, yes, I, I know it's a little before your birthday when we're recording this, but but happy birthday anyway. Well, thank you very much, Scott. And, yeah, I, 50... Yeah, 50 isn't to be feared too much. I mean, Is it not? Your, your body's probably started failing already. And, hey, yeah. talk for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you mean. <laughs> Uh, I'll just keep quiet in the corner, don't yeah. worry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you can just fuck right off, kiddo. <laughs> <laughs> It'll come to you, Matt. It'll come to you. I know my place. Yeah, yeah but when it, when it does, we'll be pushing 70. Oh, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> I've only got 17 years to go. What the hell do you mean? Uh, I, I'm looking forward to seeing your face if uh, if what we've got you seems is, uh, is something you like. I'm hoping it is, so it's not it's not a piss take. Don't worry, it's something vaguely sincere for once. So it's not a giant Cthulhu. Okay, well, you might have ruined it. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's another giant plush Cthulhu, Scott. <laughs> One of the only well, others I'm, to make it in the country. Yeah. I'm grateful for whatever I receive, Matt. So uh. <laughs> it's an unrefrigerated halibut. <laughs> that, that we might have to get that now just to... <laughs> as long as it's not a fishing rod <laughs> well I guess that means it's time once again for the Lovecraftian word of the uh, week and now the Lovecraftian word of the week And this week our word is nauseous. Yeah, sorry, before you get into the definition, I just think it's interesting that you pronounce it like that. I mean, th- this is something that I was wondering about. I, mean, I I keep hearing it pronounced differently as either nauseous or nauseous. Nauseous, I think, seems to be much more of an American pronunciation. I blame the wife. <laughs> so hold but, on then, so I say nauseous. Yes, but Matt said nauseous. Okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, like I say, I blame the wife. If I start saying sidewalk, please give me a kick. Yeah, because I first encountered this word as a kid when listening to stand-up routines recorded by Woody Allen, and he always pronounced it as nauseous. But anyway, sorry, get on with the definition. Tomato, tomato. (laughs) (laughs) It's an adjective. One, causing nausea. There's a surprise. Sickening. Or two, affected with nausea. Now, you say there's a surprise, Matt, but as Scott is about to point out, the meaning has shifted, right? Yeah. I, when Lovecraft was writing, the standard definition of it was that first one, causing nausea. Now, in conversation these days, you know, if, if you, know, you, Matt, were to say, you know, oh, I'm feeling a bit nauseous, I would take that to mean that you're feeling sick, that you're feeling like you know, you're nauseated. Whereas it wouldn't be me saying that. I'd just say I feel like shit and sit down. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. But I'm, I'm, I'm posing a hypothetical here, Matt. <laughs> yeah. uh, but in practice, you know, it, certainly in Lovecraft's day, if you were to announce that you were nauseous, you'd be saying that you were inducing nausea in others, that you were sickening. I am typhoid, Mary. So, yes, because in, in the first of our quotes, we have the line... There were nauseous musical instruments. Now, if we consider that, there are new, mu- you know, there's a violin that's about to throw up. What? It's a tuba yeah. with a cold. Yeah. So, because <laughs> I think I, I would have been confused by that line if I really considered it. You know, why does, surely that's a misuse of the word. Yeah. And yeah, I must admit, you know, certainly when I was growing up, I'd heard both definitions of it. And that ambiguity, you know, struck me as being a bit of a trap. And, uh, Certainly, you know, on the rare occasions that I actually use uh, or make reference to nausea, I must admit I tend to use nauseating or nauseated as as differentiators just because the ambiguity of nauseous. And also there, Matt, I noticed that you said, well, I wouldn't use that word. I'd just say I feel like shit and sit down. <laughs> you know, I hope that through the Lovecraftian word of the week, you've been taking it to your heart and expanding your vocabulary. <laughs> oh, you know, I trust- hope you've been, you know, talking about demoniacal things and I was uh, just about to say Eldritch I was, and I was just about to say that given that one article that's going to be coming up in a minute, I think cacodemoniacal is definitely one word that's entered my lexicon. <laughs> you managed to say it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, just as an aside to our listeners, the number of outtakes we have when recording these segments is amazing. It's it's become a running gag for us while we're recording that um, we almost never get through the first pass of one of these quotes without falling apart completely. Scott Scott says terrifying. uh, Scott says amazing. I just say downright fucking terrifying. (laughs) Also, Scott's being rather modest there because he's the one that usually gets through them in one take. Yeah. Not always, but usually. And also, the other thing is the cheer that Matt and I give when we actually do get through one without without stumbling. (laughs) He's like, booyah! But briefly, going back to the word nauseous, uh, Lovecraft used this, again, quite a lot in his, his fiction. Um, you know, th- this is another example, I think, of you know, a, a very Lovecraftian word that we don't necessarily associate with Lovecraft in the, the way that we do, you know, say, non-Euclidean or uh, squamous or, or uh, rugos. You know, the, these words that you know, are, are seen as being Lovecraft cliches, which he used you know, a handful of times. Nauseous, he used, you know, some 22 times in his fiction. And, you know, like uh, a number of the words we've discussed, this is, again, another word that comes out of the revulsion at the heart of a lot of Lovecraft's fiction. Yeah, definitely kind of sense of physical disgust about, you know, the sense of, you know, vomiting. 
Yeah, I think I think this this sense of revulsion is one of the most intrinsic qualities to Lovecraft's work. That um, yeah, it's it's something that I think says quite a lot about his character. That when he describes these horrors that he encounters, or you know, his characters encounter, or the you know, the very strange things that come up in his stories. The the words that he uses to describe them are largely ones that that revolve around disgust, and yeah, that that's that's an interesting thing because I think you know most modern horror writers, yeah, I mean they may touch upon that with the extreme gore and stuff like that, but most of the time it's going to be the fear rather than that visceral reaction, mm, the fear and the terror of it. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Now let's take a look at how Lovecraft used the word nauseous in his writings. From the Hound. There were nauseous musical instruments, stringed, brass and woodwind, on which St. John and I produced dissonances of exquisite morbidity and cacodemoniacal ghastliness. Whilst in a multitude of inlaid ebony cabinets reposed the most incredible and unimaginable variety of tomb loot ever assembled by human madness and perversity. And from the rats in the walls. This time I did not have to question the source of his snarls and hisses, and of the fear which made him sink his claws into my ankle, unconscious of their effect, for on every side of the chamber the walls were alive with nauseous sound, the verminous slithering of ravenous, gigantic rats. And from Pickman's model. There was something very disturbing about the nauseous sketches and half-finished monstrosities that leered around from every side of the room, and when Pickman suddenly unveiled a huge canvas on the side away from the light, I could not for my life keep back a loud scream, the second I had emitted that night. And on to our main topic, extreme subjects in gaming. Well, before we launch into the discussion itself, let's just warn everyone that by the nature of what we're talking about this evening, we're going to delve into some fairly uncomfortable subject matter. It's difficult to talk about uncomfortable subject matter without talking about uncomfortable subject matter. So, yeah, if there are certain things that are going to really upset you... You may want to skip the rest of this episode. Uh, I'll tell you what, though. We're going to run through a little catalogue in a moment of what we mean by extreme topics. And while we're not going to get too salacious about any of the details or go into, you know, revel in any of them, if any of the topics sound like things you don't want to hear about, then just be warned. So what do we mean by extreme subjects? That's a, a very broad category of things to which everybody's going to have maybe a different picture in their mind obviously there's things such as gore i mean you can have extreme gore that uh, is, is distasteful but that's yeah. just the tip of the iceberg or the tip of the extreme iceberg yeah the big one for me I and mean, if we're talking about things that make people genuinely uncomfortable in games and, and media which is really what we're doing tonight then you know the big one for me is sexual violence yeah seconded yeah and yeah, you know, to 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 some extent, on top of that, I mean sadism in general. I yeah, you know, I'm not talking about sort of you know um, BDSM games in you know in the bedroom or something like that. I'm talking about your know, genuine cruelty. Other types of extremes that might cause offence include such things as cannibalism, scatology, necrophilia, bestiality, cruelty to children, cruelty to animals, domestic abuse, racism. There's a there's a a broad 
range of, of topics here, all of which you know, fall into can fall into the extreme. Yeah, one we've missed off that list, which actually causes a lot of offence, and it's particularly ironic we missed it there, considering the name of our website is blasphemy as well. And drugs. Yep, drugs, that's another big one. I, I, and also depictions of mental illness. I mean, th- these are all things that can, you know, stir up unwanted negative attention. Uh, sorry. These are all things that can stir up unwanted negative emotions in people at the gaming table. And, you know, it, th- that's not to say, and, and, you know, obviously, as we're talking about this, you know, this is obvious. But uh, this is not to say that, you know, they should never come up in games. We're just going to talk about... Yeah, how we'd handle them, how they may cause problems and how that might be mitigated, or you know, maybe just how to broach these discussions. But we're going to kick off with a look at uses of extreme subjects in other media. Yeah, because obviously with, with role-playing games, we draw a lot of influence from the films we see, the books we read, you know, comics and so on. Being horror fans, you know, horror in particular, is a medium of extremes, or a genre of extremes. But concentrating on horror, I mean, how do we pin down here what is extreme? What is, you know, perhaps crossing that line or dancing around that line of going from being fun uncomfortable to really uncomfortable? Well, part of it's going to be determined by the kind of the context you're in at the time, because this is one thing that we were looking at when doing um, preparing the list of examples for these stuff that was horrific twenty or thirty years ago isn't necessarily horrific today, depending obviously on on the subject. That that changes over time. Sometimes things that were fairly were not judged to be as offensive back, say, in the early 70s. Now, when you watch them, you think, really? They put that in? I mean, there was I was watching yeah. a film recently that, that made light of rape, for example. And I, think, I don't think they'd do that in the same way. They wouldn't play that for comedy now. Yeah, I mean, there were all sorts of things that were played for comedy in the 70s, like you know, homophobia, sexism, racism, uh, that I mean, you, you can still perhaps you know, approach them in a comedic manner these days, but it tends to be more about undermining them rather than embracing them, as the humour was much more in the 70s. Well, I think for me, one of the big examples, one of the most concrete examples I can po- point to in my lifetime of how sort of extremes change would be the great video nasty furore of, of the early 80s. For those of you who you know, don't know the history, in the early 80s, home video became a big thing in the UK. Um, there were video shops that, that you know, grew up all over the place, mostly independent ones, and this is before the days of things like Blockbuster. And the way that these films were classified was handled differently than cinema releases. So there were an awful lot of films which couldn't be shown at the cinema, you know, for example, because the British Board of Film Censorship, I think as it was at the time, before it became the British Board of Film Classification, would I, you know, deny the film a certificate or it would cut you know, big sections out. But this didn't happen to video releases. And so as a result, the tabloids seized upon a lot of these films and you know, said that they were sick, degenerate filth, corrupting our children's morals, uh, leading to an increase in crime, you know, all, all the usual bollocks. But at least it took some of the pressure off the evils of D&D. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Uh, Probably not. But, no, you know. no, this was just before the satanic panic, I think. Yeah, this all came to the, a head in 1984 when uh, the, some new laws got passed that uh, meant that the BBFC you know, could then classify uh, or deny classifications to, to home videos. 
As a result, there were a lot of popular horror films at the time, which you know, got dubbed by the tabloid press as being video nasties, which ended up being taken out of release. I mean, and, and you know, some of these have, have certainly turned up since then. I mean, there were any number of you know films by Lucio Fulci. I remember some Dario Argento ones, mm-hmm. things like you know, Anthropophagus and uh, Driller Killer and Zombie Flesh Eaters was a big one. Yes. I remember. Yeah, Texas Chainsaw Massacre was banned yeah. for a long time. Yes. Yeah. I'm not saying that these films are tame. I mean, you know, they, they do, in some cases, they really are quite gory. But in a lot of cases now, you know, maybe they're more sadistic in their approach, or, you know, maybe there's more, you know, mixing of, of the gore with, with sexual content. But on the whole, they're not a lot worse than you'd see in a, you know, a television crime show these days in terms of, you know, it, it, blood and guts and, and viscera. So, yeah, I, I think our approach certainly to, to gore has changed an awful lot in the last 30 years. So we're talking about, you know, the, the history of it, but what, what ones have we actually found personally that have, that we found extreme, that have caused a, you know, a reaction in us? And I guess... When we're talking about extremes, there can be things in a film that I would think might repel other people, but because of the way they're handled or because, you know, that that subject doesn't bother me so much, maybe, then I'm okay with it. So, for example, Old Boy, that's got some fairly extreme things in it, but because of the way it's handled and it's such a brilliant film that I'm kind of carried along with it. So I think part of what kind of covers that is is the quality of the, the production and the acting and the story and everything. So yeah. Well, I, I think this goes back to what I was mentioning before about being made to feel uncomfortable in a, you know, a, a, I'm not not even in a good way, but being in an entertaining way in a. Yeah. And also, we like horror yeah. films. We like we yeah. kind of seek out for some reason that feeling of um, revulsion, horror, and so on. But but sometimes that yeah you know, that 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 revulsion. Uh, and that discomfort will, you know, pass into an area that we don't want to go, and that's that's really what we're touching on here. So, any mm. examples of that, guys? I can only think of two really, um, but they they're also two very different examples. Um, mm. One of them was actually what I mentioned uh, a few minutes ago: zombie flesh eaters. When I saw that, that there was a particular uh, run that was done on Channel Four at the time uh, when I watched it very late night. That was saying, "Oh, previously banned films now on TV." Um, but they'd still cut some scenes out because even then they were considered too gory to show on or too violent to show on TV. So they, they showed bits of them. I, I think I can guess what scene you're about to discuss. But let, let's, the, the let's scene and the follow-up, uh, the follow-up scene to it, yeah. That There's one particular moment when uh, the basic premise of zombie flesh eaters is it's zombies running loose on an island. Done. That there's There's a doctor and his wife. The wife stays at home. The wife goes to have a shower. And zombie hand goes up window. So, yeah, you know something bad's going to happen. Uh, she starts locking down, all, uh, locking down all the doors, putting down the shutters on the blinds and such. And zombie hand pushes its way through door, grabs her by the hair, and then starts pulling it mm. towards uh, pulling it towards her. You think, oh, yeah, okay, he's going to go through the uh, go through the door, get um, get a head bitten. No, there's a great big wooden shard um, that's sticking out of the door that's you can see it just coming towards the camera and think, ah, okay, this is, yeah, anything that was about poking out the eye was a bit uncomfortable, which it's the the version I watched stopped with this shard just coming up to touch her eye. 
to some extent, I'm rather glad it did because I thought, no, I don't want to, don't want to see this, don't need to see this. I finally saw the whole scene probably a couple, um, a year or so ago, and thought that's blatantly not an eye. That's yeah. a shit special effect. But at the time, just the little gl- glimpse you got of before it went into the fake eye was pretty real in that in that little flash that I had. Uh, it just made my skin crawl that there was, oh, uh, yeah. In no. a bad way that you didn't like. Really, no. Yeah. Right. Yeah, the other one that just really made me, just, I almost turned the, um, turned the, the film off because I didn't want to watch the rest of it. But it was, actually when I was fairly young, it's after I read, uh, read the book that I thought, I want to see what the film's like to see how faithful an adaptation of it is. And unfortunately, it is a very faithful one, um, is Dolores Claiborne. Oh, huh. Um, that there's one particular uh, section. It also makes me kind of tip my hat in one respect to thinking how good an actor uh, David Strathern is. Um, that the the basic premise is it's a, it's a domestic drama uh, or domestic abuse drama. So it's not a normal Stephen King horror. That there's one scene where the guy, where the husband bends over and he's basically he splits his trousers, and the wife laughs at him. Um, he, he plays along with it to a point. He's like he wiggles his ass around and goes, "Hey, look, big move, full moon rising, or something to that effect." And then he just casually picks up this uh, two by four, uh, two by four, uh, as his wife's um, washing dishes at the sink, and smacks it with all his force that he can into the small of her back, Ooh. and think that's enough. I don't need to go any further. And his just casual reaction of just dropping the uh, dropping the wood and walking away as if nothing had happened. That yeah, he's. No, I've got no intention of reading that book again, and certainly no intention of watching the film again. And so, in that case, it's less because of the graphic nature of it, or gore, or anything like that, but because of the emotional impact of it. Yeah, it was just outright fucking disgust. Yeah, and I, I think that's that's an important thing to touch on here. That I mean, when we're talking about extremes or extreme reactions and things that revolt us, that it doesn't have to be you know, that that gore and blood and guts. That in some cases, those little emotional triggers are far more powerful. So, what about you, Scott? Are there films or, or parts of films or books that have really caused you disgust, discomfort, disgust, discomfort yeah. in yeah. a way that was too extreme? Yeah, I and mean, there are. You know, it's funny. I, I think of myself as being fairly inured to extremes, but when I was, you know, thinking about specific examples here, I came up with really quite a lot, and I just came up with one more because I hadn't actually anticipated books there. So maybe I'll actually start out with the book one, which is actually a book I read fairly recently, which is um, a, a novel by Georges Bataille, um, who was a, a French existentialist philosopher who wrote a few novels. And he wrote a novel called uh, The Story of the Eye. The whole thing is is sort of an exercise in extremes. It's a very short novel. It's only about 100 pages long. It's sort of a love story. It follows this young couple as they sort of kind of work through this cycle of corruption as they sort of push each other to extremes, you know, particularly the woman pushing the man to extremes. And um, there's an awful lot of stuff involving bodily waste, particularly urine and water sports in there, which, yeah, I, I found a bit off-putting at times, but wasn't too bad. But, I mean, there is a, a, a final scene in it that basically involves... Um, you know, sexual games involving a, um, a severed testicle actually made me feel somewhat physically ill as I was reading it, which is something that I did not anticipate a book would be able to do to me. In terms of extremes, 
I hesitate to say I enjoyed the film, but I thought it was a good film, um, but it was definitely extreme, was the French film Irreversible. Oh, yes. I've not heard of this, but I know that um, I've seen the reactions that both of you two have had with this. Okay, I mean, it's got two scenes in there. One is a protracted rape scene in a in a subway, which goes yeah. on for eight or nine minutes. Oh, at least, yeah. I mean, this is... Yeah, I think one of the most upsetting things I've ever seen on film. It is just this relentless, grim, I, not not dramatised at all. I, I, I suppose one of the, the things about it is that it goes on for so long, you almost start becoming desensitised to it. And it, it, that makes it all the more horrible. I'd kind of heard that was in there, so I guess I was able to kind of almost ward that off a little bit in my mind because I, I was prepared for it. What I wasn't prepared for was the later scene in a bar when uh, there's a fight and the guy picks up a fire extinguisher and just batters this guy's head in and it's really in your face, well, really in his face, really graphic. <laughs> that was a great choice of words. Yeah, right sorry. Yeah. We've all seen lots of combat and fights and, and action on screen, but this was really yeah. brutal and so much so, yeah, it made me feel quite ill. Yeah. But in the film, I, it didn't put me off the film. I mean, it, I think... The intention there was to be extreme, and I think it was there. F- it was it was part of an important part of the film. Well, I think as well one of the things that makes it irreversible so affecting in that way is that I when when you see extreme things like this in films, they tend to be done in a you know perhaps a, an unrealistic way, or um, that there are musical cues or you know. Uh, just the way it's filmed that offer you perhaps a bit of remove or detachment from what's going on the way irreversible is made you know it it feels absolutely real it feels like you are intruding into real events yeah um and that's why i didn't feel it was just gratuitous and badly judged uh as it will be in a couple of films we'll talk about when we talk about when this can go wrong um Long time ago, when I was still um, still a kid, I remember watching because uh, I was and still am to some extent quite a sci-fi fan. Um, there was a film which I saw in the um, at that time. They still had the TV listings, so you could uh, you'd have to buy your magazine and read them. And the last line they still of this, exist, Matt. They still exist. <laughs> yeah, but what fucking use are they? Um, but the last line of the review in this uh, just said, "Don't watch before you go to the dentist." And thought, "What the hell?" Of course, I watched it, and then yeah, no. Marathon Man? Oh, God, no, no. Is it safe? It's, it's a wonderful film. <laughs> no, this... Um, Fire in the Sky. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Yes. yeah, yeah. God, that... Oh, even just just the image that it left. Uh, the guy sat on the table. This kind of almost... I remember like a latex film over the top of him with just his mouth trashed was... Oh, disgusting. <laughs> well, I guess that's that that's something, that sense of disgust. So would, yeah. you wouldn't watch that again, Matt? God, probably not then is this is this a sense of extreme so i can think of some films which exhibit you know some of the the categories of extreme that we've we've described and i think they're great you know they're great yeah. films because of the way they've kind of done it yeah. and i'd happily watch them again like old boy or you know or the ordeal or so on in fact i think we should mention a few of those after you know we go through this little bit but you know perhaps just for the moment let's talk about films that have made us uncomfortable in the wrong way sure i mean, the, the other film i wish for all my life, I could unwatch uh, is Cannibal Holocaust. Mm. 
I know of it, but I've never seen it. Yeah, it was an Italian horror film from, I think, the late 70s. It was, again, one of the video nasties. Um, you know, it got a bit of a reputation on, on home video back in the early 80s. And I, most of the horror stuff in there is fairly tame. It's about a film crew uh, who end up uh, in the Amazonian jungle and fall foul of a bunch of, of cannibals there. And it ended up being the subject of a... Um, uh, of a fairly silly court case where someone decided that it was a snuff movie because one of the uh, one of the women is killed uh, towards the end by having a a wooden spike basically driven up through uh, an orifice so, yeah an orifice and out through her mouth and just sort of left hanging there yeah and yeah, I mean that's that's a fairly nasty scene, and yeah, you can find stills of that online, and it looks quite realistic. That is not the reason why it crossed live me. What makes this such an utterly repellent film for me is that all the way through there are various scenes of animal cruelty, which, for budgetary reasons, because they were shooting on location in the Amazon, they did not fake. Uh, so there is, a, you know, the, the one that sticks with me is there is a film where they, the, the film crew find a tortoise. Uh, well, a turtle, uh, right? Yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah. Yes. yeah, and basically flip it over onto its back and start hacking up it up with a machete and laughing as its guts come out and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. It's, like yeah, turtles. It's, yeah, yeah, it's really gross. Um, yeah. And it does just feel unnecessary as oh, well. Completely. I Gratuitous, mean, unnecessary. It doesn't add anything to the film. No, it's there to shock the audience, and it certainly works in that respect. But I mean, I, I've seen other films in which animals are being killed for real. I mean, like Apocalypse Now, uh, or you know, uh, Jean-Luc Godard's Le Weekend. I, I don't know. Maybe it's because those were brief scenes, you know, and there wasn't that sense of glee that went with them. But they didn't affect me in quite the same way. But also in Apocalypse Now, it's a cow that's killed, and and, and it's and I think killed, it is in Little Weekend. I or is is either that or a pig? I can't remember. But it's killed pretty readily with a massive chop yeah. to the back of the neck. We're all meat eaters here. To truly object to that scene, I'm not sure you could really object to that scene and carry on eating meat because. I don't know. I would imagine that cow was probably barbecued. Yeah. Um, but whereas with the turtle, it was just kind of tortured. On a lighter note, when you were saying about animal cruelty, I was just thinking a reanimator. But again, yes. with that, we know it's a, well, we trust that it's a, it's a fake, you know, the cat that gets killed. Mm-hmm. It's, um, it's blatantly a puppet. That's, yeah, that's but even, even, if, even if the special effect was so good as that it actually looked like a real cat, you know, we still have faith in the in the makers of the film and so on that they didn't actually kill a real cat. So no, no. personally, I'm okay with that. I'm not okay with killing cats in, in any way. But if it's part of the horror film, then, you know, it's part of the story. I, and just to, to prove that I can be, you know, kind of grossed out and slightly upset by things that are fake. We're both looking at them in disbelief yeah. at this point. <laughs> What's this? Well, to, to be fair, I was 16 when I saw this, and I don't think it would have the same effect on me now. Mm-hmm. But I remember going to the cinema when I was a kid, you know, going in slightly underage, uh, to watch a double bill of, of Lucio Fulci films. And one of the films was um, The City of the Living Dead. There is one particular scene in there which actually made me feel physically ill. For a moment, I thought like I was actually going to vomit. I mean, yeah, it's, it's over 30 years since I've seen this, so I may get some of the, the details wrong. But, uh, yeah, I remember it involving a girl sitting in a car 
in in the front seat of a car and you know so, something weird happens and she basically starts vomiting up her internal organs mm-hmm. yeah boyfriends in the car at the same time if i remember right it's done you know with a few clever cuts but yeah you know, I, I seem to remember they actually used you know real animal viscera for this and you know just these things tumbling out of her mouth with this look of horror and you know they the they vomit and blood streaming down her jaw but what I remember really getting to me was the noises going with that. And I suppose it was a combination of the gore and the, you know, the fact that there was a sympathetic gag reflex going on. That, yeah, you know, I, I don't think I've ever had the same feeling at the cinema of thinking, I, I'm going to throw up if I'll keep watching this and having to look away. Well, that's an interesting topic in itself, is the stories of people in cinemas, you know, actually being sick or running out of the cinema. I mean, mm. I've never actually seen this happen. Certainly, you know, there's, there's numerous films that have used that as publicity. Mm-hmm. And whether these things actually happen, you know, did people leave The Exorcist or whatever? And did people actually throw up because of <laughs> what was happening on the scene? I don't know if that really happened. Only well, if they'd eaten pea soup before. <laughs> I've always dismissed a lot of these stories, but I remember reading a few years back uh, when Chuck Palahniuk's uh, collection Haunted came out oh god that he'd been going around doing readings uh of of the opening story in their guts oh yeah and uh, yeah uh, that there'd been similar reactions from the audience that people from a from a reading yeah wow that people were becoming nauseated you know a few people had thrown up people have walked out of it because it went too far and i thought yeah this this isn't going to happen at a reading you thought i've got to read this yeah and and, uh, yeah uh, haunted i think is a fantastic book i recommend it to everyone it's sort of a modern day reimagining of the decameron but Hold on, yeah. Scott. Do you recommend it to everyone? I do. Okay. Um, but He's a be- sadist, that's <laughs> yeah. why. But be warned, yeah, guts will make you feel genuinely ill. There is one scene in it, and yes, I can I can now understand why someone, particularly in a warm, stifled environment with lots of other people reacting around them, might end up feeling sick as a result. That story taught me the art, uh, gave me such wonderful pearls of knowledge of finally realising what hazing is, and also that... <laughs> I can't describe what it was like to hold my um, to hold my entrails repping out of my butt, but it feels a lot like sausage. <laughs> it's horrible. <laughs> so I think there's a division to be made here between extremes that we find we wouldn't want to watch again and we kind of wish we hadn't, to extremes that we kind of hold up as impressive and admirable. So what about ones that we've seen that we wouldn't recommend? ones that go to extremes but for some reason we feel do it badly i mean we've talked about some already but well we've talked about ones that kind of revolted us so much but i think yeah there's another category here which is ones that try too hard or you know attempt attempt to be shocking and extreme and don't pull it off or it goes wrong that is their kind of high concept really just to be gross yes to to over to to overstep the mark i can think of five (laughs) <laughs> you can think of five, Matt. Yeah. You want to give us Matt's top five <laughs> countdown of gross films? It's going to be really quick. Go on then. Saw three, four, five, six, seven. Done. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> You've watched all those? I've got them all on DVD for my for my sins. Okay. Watch the first two. They're okay. The first one by far the best. Second yeah. one has nice nice moments where it takes it in different directions. Leave it there. <laughs> but you know, let's delve down into the human centipede. Yeah, I yeah. the human centipede. I uh, yeah, I I know that there are a lot of people out there who find it an incredibly shocking film, and it really should be. I that is such a fantastically grotesque premise. So you know, a mad scientist or a mad surgeon 
kidnaps three people and creates his dream. Yeah, this this theory that he's had for ages, which he describes as the human centipede, where he grafts the mouths of two of them to the anuses of, of the others, forming this, this kind of long digestive system that starts with one mouth, passes through two others, and finally goes out the last person's anus. And, you know, in terms of the things we've talked about, in terms of the sadism, in terms of the scatological contents, in terms of just the sheer visceral nastiness of it, that should be horrifying. Yeah, what I mean, if you haven't seen this film, what Scott just described, if you think, oh, that sounds really gross, you know, oh, I'd like to watch that, yeah, it, it, you'll be disappointed. Because yeah. the film isn't, you know, if you're a kind of a gore fan or whatever, or, or you just like that concept... It doesn't deliver. No, I, I, I still, I mean, after having seen it, I still cannot understand how you take a concept that unpleasant and make it dull. Yeah. But somehow Tom Six manages it. Yeah. He's <laughs> a master of his craft. <laughs> and then the sequel's no better. Yeah, I, I, I didn't bother with either of the sequels. Yeah, I've seen the second one. Yeah. Um, you just get more of it. Yeah. And more turns out, turns, as I recall, it kind of turns out it's a bit of a dream scene um, <laughs> by this guy that's watched the first one. But I, I, I think it's an object lesson that having one nasty idea isn't enough on its own, that you need to develop it. You can't rely on that one you know, bit of transgression, that it needs to... Well, it had that emotional context we were talking about. It needs to have an impact on the larger story. You can't just rely on that one thing and then just assume the rest of it will be carried by it. Well, I think if we think of a film like Peter Jackson's Brain Dead, you know, where they're fighting zombies with uh, garden lawnmowers... <laughs> You know, it's it's really gross, and there are lots of crazy things in it. But they are crazy, and it's kind of funny, uh, and it's intentionally funny, right? The um, reason that I have not been able to eat rice pudding since. <laughs> <laughs> but yes. you know, I think when you, it, again, it comes down to me for intent, and it, if it's supposed to be yeah. a serious film, and it just falls foul of that and becomes uh, ridiculous, and all you can do is kind of turn it off or laugh at it or whatever, then it's kind yeah. of you know, it's yeah. just not very good. Yeah, I mean, yeah, like you say, brain dead or reanimator, or, you know, embrace the ludicrousness of the gore and make it fun and funnier. Do you, you know, at the same time as being, you know, slightly revol- revolted, you're also laughing along with it. We've talked a lot about films. Now let's look at extremes in gaming. One of the things that has come up over the past few years, it's probably been around for maybe seven or eight years now, is lines and veils. This is a discussion whereby the you know, normally the GM would sort of throw it out as a discussion before starting the game to get everybody on the same page. And we've discussed this previously in the show, but I think we just give a brief overview of what that technique is again. As Paul said, it is just a discussion. It's sort of trying to define two things. The line is where the line lies for you. What, what, what sort of things do you absolutely positively not want to see in a game? So, you know, if, for example, you know, the idea of rape turning up as an element in a game is absolutely off-putting for you and you want nothing to do with that game, 
then yeah, the, the, during that discussion, you sort of say that, and and it doesn't necessarily have to be something as as obvious as rape. I mean, we've had you know all, all sorts of discussions with people in the past about you know, particularly when setting up collaborative games, and you know, people have come up with things that wouldn't have occurred to me. Like um, we certainly discuss cruelty to animals, but very specifically, I mean, there's one person we play with sometimes is cruelty to cats in particular. If anything bad happens to a, a cat in the game, that's that's it. He cannot play that game. And even quite relatively what some people might consider relatively mild uh, things yes. to, to cats would, would, uh, would be a no-no for him. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I've, I've certainly had the discussion before as well, where it's, um, you know, not just cruelty to children or children dying, but children being threatened or endangered. You know, th- th- this seems to particularly happen with people, you know, new parents or people who you know, have got young children. Hmm. They cannot enjoy a game if, if that element is there. Let me guess, he doesn't play any of your games much, does he? <laughs> and then veils are whereby... Yeah, those things can be in there, but if we kind of go there, let's just fade to black and draw a veil over that topic. So it happens, we we allow it to happen, but we kind of agree that it's happening off screen. And usually when I've encountered this in in game setups before, that is almost invariably where someone will say, yeah, any sex scenes, let's draw a veil over them. The difficulty, of course, with lines and veils is that... you, know, you don't necessarily anticipate that there's going to be this thing in the game and also you may not know what things are really going to get under your skin or bother you that you know somebody might bring up so it is hard to sort of you know unless you carry around a, a card with a list of things that you know bother you written on it that you can kind of bring in um, it can be difficult to bring all those to the table. And as a GM, it's sometimes difficult to anticipate and prompt those, uh, particularly if you want to give people warnings. Um, I, you know, I, I can think of some scenarios I've run where you know, I could and probably should give people content warnings about some of the things that are going to happen in there, but at the same time, they're huge spoilers for what's going to happen in the game. And also, I think it's, you know, it may be quite uncomfortable when that topic comes up for somebody who is who doesn't want to have any um, sexual abuse in the game it may be quite uncomfortable even just saying that, you know, to say, you know, well, I'm okay with this game, but I don't want any sexual abuse in it because it kind of focuses people on them and they might be feeling, well, people want to know why I don't want this in the game. And then you kind of almost feel uncomfortable just at that. And and what's even worse is when you don't think to have that discussion up front and something happens in the game and you feel like you should speak up and sort of say, oh, actually, no, I really don't want this. Mm-hmm. And you're know, breaking the game at that stage and doing that. I, you know, for example, one thing that I, I never, ever want to see in games that I either play or run is rape. Well, um, you had the experience of being in a game, right? Yeah. Where one player attacked another player's player character and then... Yeah, and then stated, extreme. Oh, yeah. We're saying that they, they they then said they were raping that player. Their player character was raping that player yeah. character. Yeah, and and I was playing in the game. I wasn't the GM. Uh, I did that classic thing, and I I really kicked myself for it afterwards, of sitting there waiting for the GM to sort of say, "Oh, yeah, actually, no, that's that's going too far." And the GM at the time didn't. Yeah, and I really, really wish that yeah, you know, I just spoken up at that stage and said, "Yeah, you know, no, no, yeah, you know, I do not want this happening. It's you know, gone too is, far." Yeah. Particularly seeing as yeah. You know, 
the woman who was playing the character that was getting raped, I know, has, has stated before in games that I've played that rape is a really hot topic for her and she doesn't want it in games. And I don't know, for some reason I was just paralysed at that point and didn't speak up. And, and she was obviously in the same position. She was so shocked by it. That, well, yeah, I think it's pretty shocking because... Yeah. I can imagine that sort of happening off screen, you know, an NPC and, you know, being part of a backstory or something. But for a player to say they're doing that to another player's character, I don't know, in, in the games we played, I just don't envisage that happening. No, it's, it's something I've not seen before or since. And maybe because it was such a rare occurrence, that's, that's why I had that sort of shocking paralysis. Yeah, it's a very, very difficult thing to cope with. And I think also sometimes when these things that shock us happen... Well, A, we're kind of shocked, so we're like lost for words for a few moments and then it moves on and the moment's gone, perhaps. But B, we're also sort of deferring to somebody else. Oh, surely that's, you know, because we're talking about the offence of a third party to some degree here. Well, that being the the, the greater no, offence. No, I mean, yeah, I mean, yes, yeah, I mean, that that, that was you know, a large part of this. But yeah, yeah I, I was definitely really offended as well. I, you know, personally, I didn't want this in the game. No, you didn't. But it was you were aware, particularly yes. of the the other person being offended by this. I think, and I think when that happens, you kind of look to that person to say something, or like you said, or the GM, who I I always do think we hold in a state of uh, being in charge of things. That's false, I think. Yeah, I mean, certainly I've had players that have done inappropriate things in games before, and sometimes I've called them out on it. Sometimes I haven't. And, you know, I'm not entirely sure why I haven't. You know, it's may- difficult. Yeah. I think, you know, it, it is difficult challenging those things. I mean, just as in the street, you know, if we're just talking to, to people, somebody uses a racist term or something like that, we should challenge it. But yes. do we always challenge it? It's difficult. Yeah. It's a, it is a it is a difficult thing to do. And Matt, you mentioned um, a scene in a game which you were GM for, right? With something to do with razor blades and so on? Yeah. I ran Cult back at IndieCon a few years ago. I am, my fatal mistake being I'd used the original rule system and that really was a bad choice. That was the extreme. That was too much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, the, just the rule system just killed any atmosphere. But anyway, uh, one of the... Parts of the plot was that it revolved around a trip into Inferno, in particular to a p- particular person or Nephrite's purgatory. And one of the effects that it lists in the book is that the the sensual experiences of anyone who goes in there are changed; they're muddled around or even reversed. And the idea that I'd come up with was that there was this iron corridor with razor blades uh, that had been pinned into the walls that there was a chance, if they were running down the corridor, that they could accidentally nick themselves. And it's a, it, well, in retrospect, it's kind of a blatant trap that you think if someone's going to be going down there, they're going to fail the dex roll and then someone's going to get hit by this effect. Someone did. Um, someone that was a um, sort of self-proclaimed um, cult fan, they really loved the game system, so they threw themselves into it quite a lot. But I described that as they'd cut themselves on one of the razor blades, that instead of feeling intense pain, they felt... Um, the, the way I described it was that it was orgasmic. It was a ultimate sen- sexual pleasure that they had felt by this. The player then proceeded to describe how they were rubbing themselves up against the razor blades, how they were um, cutting themselves and stripping the flesh off their bones as they were getting sexually aroused. And one of the players at the table, you could see her jaw hit the deck and it didn't come up for the rest of the session. Mm. And then she just left at the end without saying goodbye, without saying anything, and just, I've never seen her again at the convention. But then it was warned that it was an adult game. But 
Yeah, but I mean, that, that's a very, very difficult thing to convey, particularly in the convention sign-up sheet. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if, if someone doesn't know what kind of game cult is, and you, you just put down that it deals with adult subject matter, adult subject matter, you know, in horror could mean absolutely anything. I mean, you know, as a catch-all, I, on any sign-up sheet I put up, I automatically put adults only, even if it's not something particularly extreme, just because I, I know, for example, I swear a lot, during mm-hmm. the game. Oh, and, I, mean, I swear like a trooper sometimes. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, you know, people don't necessarily want to bring their teenagers along and, you know, have, have me, you know, curse them blind, you know, all the way through the game. You know, it then becomes a bit difficult, I suppose, if you're giving these warnings in advance to differentiate between that and, say, what you just described. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, that at least conveying ahead of time that this is going to deal with, you know, extreme, you know, you know or potentially deal with extreme bloody horror... But also, I mean, Matt set the situation up, but it was the player that really got into it and really mm-hmm. made it what it became, right? Very much so. He, he elaborated yeah. upon what that... When I gave him that stimulus, is this is how you feel. Yeah. But I mean, he ran with it and described what had happened. So, you know, whatever you'd put up on the sign-up sheet, you don't know what the player, the other players are going to do. So potentially yes. in... I mean, I guess one of the things with the, the Lines and Veils discussion is that everybody sat around doing it. But but as a GM, you don't know really, you know what's in your scenario, but you don't know what the player characters, the players are going to do with it. And, and yeah, I mean, how do you say in advance, you know, as a player, you know, I really don't want someone cutting all their skin off with a razor blade because, you know, it's not going to occur to you until this happens that might be in the scenario. Yeah. I mean, this is one reason why, I, I think this is more of an American thing. I've not seen it in the UK. John Stavropoulos, I think uh, I may be getting his name wrong came up with a thing that people can use in conventions in the US which is called the X card um, so it's it's sort of like a you know an after the event lines and veils thing so it's just this card that has got a big X on the table I, you know, I, I may be getting bits wrong because I've never used one myself but the idea is that if at any stage um, the game goes into territory that you really really do not want to see it go into that you just silently hold up this X card. You don't have to explain why. Well, you just or touch what. it, right? Or oh, do yeah. you hold it up? You grab I, it anyway. But oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, one of the two. So, but but use it as an indication that you don't want to explain why. But yeah, this is going somewhere that you really don't want to to go into. Have any of us used that? No, no. And would you use that? I think we've used lines and veils, right? We, yeah, we yes. certainly we've all done that. Oh yeah, yeah, I've certainly done that. What about the X card then? I'd like to think I'd never get into a position where I'd need to use it. Well, you just did, yeah. though. You just yes. described yes, that, that. That was a long time, a long time ago. And Do you I think you would treat that like situation that. differently now, Matt? I think yeah. I'd only potentially run those kind of games if I knew everyone that was in the game and knew, know that I wouldn't need to use that. But you run games at conventions, right, with people you turn up you you've ne- never met them before you know any player could do something which is oversteps the mark as, as we've described mm-hmm. you know with the rape scene or the you know the the self-gratification through violence or whatever you can't really feel that away mm-hmm. in advance no i just well i try to um i do have a i do have a discussion with players if it ends up being that type of scenario that i'm um, i'm proposing to run to say look is anyone has anyone got any problem with the following topics yeah but that's as far as i'll go generally because again i'm more worried about the spoiler aspect that scott mentioned Mm. that i don't want to say well there's this specific thing that's going to happen that could then be a massive no i'm not talking about specific things that you know are going to happen i'm talking about specific things that a player might improvise that overstep the mark uh, you, you know, can't got, foresee yeah i've got no way of foreseeing it so no. i don't know 
it, it's never actually occurred to me to use an X card. But with some of the games I run, I really probably should. And I may experiment with it the next time I, I, I'm at a convention. Because I almost feel if you're going to use it, you've kind of got to use it every time. If you're running games, as, as all three of us do, and you're quite happy to go off the page with where the players are, are, are taking it, then it becomes kind of very... Uh, there's, there's a strong element of improvisation from both the, the GM and the players. So surely there's potential for any of these games to go extreme. Yeah, definitely. We've talked a little bit about you know, the, the things that we've seen that have, that have made people uncomfortable at the table. I, do you ever think it's a, a good thing to make people uncomfortable at the gaming table? I guess we're talking about different kinds of discomfort. With this stuff that we write or run uh, at conventions or you know, for each other, are we actively seeking to try to you know, make people uncomfortable? And if so, what are we trying to accomplish by that? As you said, yes, but in a certain way. I have got no problem, and in fact I strive to try and make people scared at the table. But making them, un- making them more uncomfortable, uneasy, uh, disgusted, no. Yeah, if I can see that they're enjoying it and you know as we do on a roller coaster or in a horror film the people that not everybody likes those things but the people that do like them enjoy that sense of um, terror or revulsion that you know is they find fun and usually they're squirming but often they're kind of smiling or making noises at the same time that kind of you know we all know that everybody's having well hopefully we all know that everybody's having a good time so, yes, I would say in a horror game, I do aim to make people, I don't know what the how to, to phrase it, but to some degree of uncomfortableness. To, to at least move them out of their comfort zone. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think, you know, if you've signed up for a horror game, you want to be horrified. Yeah, I, I feel much the same way. And, and certainly I'm very liberal with things like body horror and gore and mutilation and stuff like that in my games. And I have seen people react with varying degrees of discomfort, sometimes feigned fun discomfort, and sometimes, you know, just that hint that we've crossed over into something just a bit too far to the, for them, in which case I'll pull back a bit. But I, what I... What I try to aim to do in games sometimes is move into an area of emotional discomfort, sort of dealing with difficult subject matters, trying to stir up emotions in the players. And that is a really dangerous thing to do sometimes. And yeah, sometimes it can backfire, sometimes it can go too far. And it's a really difficult thing to judge. But I think when it pays off, it's an incredibly rewarding thing. I I, I remember, for example, one of the first convention games I ran... Uh, yeah, it was dealing with some very difficult subject matter. And I had one of the players about 15, 20 minutes into the game take me to one side and sort of say, oh, actually, you know, the thing at the core of this is actually, you know, really hitting some nerves. And, you know, my wife and I have been going through something very similar recently. And, you know, this is stirring up a lot of emotions. And I said, oh, geez, no, I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah, I, 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 yeah, I, I didn't want to I think to we can that. say here, Scott, this is to do with the death of a child, right? Just no, to, no, oh, it wasn't. It's not? No, no, it wasn't. Oh, OK. No. Sorry, I thought that was that one. Sorry, oh, no. I, I interrupted there unnecessarily, I thought. Uh, no, no, it was something else. Uh, but, um, 
Yeah, he said, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, uh, that, yeah, this, this is making me feel quite genuinely uncomfortable. And I said, oh, geez, I'm, I'm sorry. In which case, um, yeah, well, I can call the game here, I can stop it. Uh, yeah, if you want to bow out, I, I will really understand. And he, he, he stood there and thought for a moment. And, and yeah, I just remember him saying, no, fuck it, this is going to be cathartic. Yeah, I'm going to go with it. And he went back and really threw himself into the game. And it turned out to be one of the best games I've ever played. And mm. he really, really got into it. And yeah, he, he, he still raves about it to this day as being you know, one of his favourite games ever. Mm-hmm. That, that's interesting. I mean, that, that came from the player, didn't it? So the yes. player made that informed deci- very well-informed decision because it was already sort of in the game already uh, and decided to carry on. Um, but I think that's something we don't do enough is to sort of stop for a moment, as you just described, step out of character, you know, break the immersion or whatever you want to call it. And as you say, you know, is everybody all right with this? Because I've certainly been in games where people have got very heated. And particularly with people I don't know, it's are they actually emotionally charged or are they just role-playing? Yeah. And sometimes I've had to sort of say, you know, are you okay with this? You know, are we all right? And, they, and, they, and they, they just smile and say, oh, yeah, yeah, no, this is great. And I'm like, oh, phew. Because <laughs> yeah. yes. I wasn't sure if you were really angry or upset. You know, you're doing a great job. Carry on. <laughs> so we've talked about a broad range of topics which are extreme. Which topics particularly to you as individuals would you avoid as a GM or a player? I'll throw this over to you, Matt. Yeah, again, like Scott said, um, for similar kind of reasons, that I will never, ever, ever have, um, at least on screen, this is, um, never have anything to do with rape or sexual violence. I'm, I'm not saying comfortable is the wrong word, um, but I'm more accepting for it as a story element as long as it is incre- very, very far off scene. Like It can be something that's happening within the story, but never in the focus of the action. I will never describe it, never have a player character describe it, never ever in that kind of context. But if it's something in history, if it's that, then that's about as close as and acceptable as I can get to it, because it is something that makes me disgusted. So anything of sexual nature... Uh, well, so you're talking no, no, consensual hang, hang as well there, or are you just talking yeah, sexual I, I, was, abuse? I was about to say, there's a big difference between sexual assault and sex, so which are we talking about Well, here? well, both. So, the, yeah, either, yeah. The, yeah, it's one of the reasons why I don't like Apocalypse World, um, and why, I, why, honestly, one of the main reasons why I refuse to play Monster Hearts as well hmm. is because of sex moves. I think they are abhorrent. I do not want that shit in my game, Period. Yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll we'll talk about this at the end of the, of the discussion, I think, as well, and sort of double back to, you know, where we draw the line with sex and violence. But um, yeah, I, I think that's you're, you're far from alone in that. Oh, I think it's a very yeah. interesting thing to talk about, and we will. And any others, Matt? That you know, of all the things we've talked about. Well, no, th- this is something that came up because one of the things that I had with going back to my one of my favourite things, Kickstarter. Um, I threw a lot of money at the cult Kickstarter that happened earlier in the year. Yeah. And one of the rewards from that is that I was asked, would you like to have a scenario designed by the cult team to your specifications? And we had this um, discussion. Is there anything that you want specifically, definitely want in the scenario and anything that you absolutely under no circumstances will not have in it? And when I thought besides, obviously, sexual assault and so on, I don't just put anything else goes. Yeah. 
it's just it's that one big red button that I will never go near. Sure. And Scott? Yeah, I mean, just echoing what Matt said, I mean, the big thing for me is, is sexual assault of any kind. I've known too many people over the years who have been raped or sexually assaulted. And, yeah, I know that having this stuff come up at the gaming table can be... You know, a very, very unwelcome, traumatic thing. And so, yeah, I just, I, yeah, I, I will avoid it out of sensitivity. I will avoid it because, yeah, I'm a bit more sensitive to myself, you know, having heard some horror stories from old girlfriends. And it's something that will largely ruin a game for me. The other thing which, you know, is perhaps not an extreme, but is something that a game will ruin a game for me, is uh, mental illness being played for laughs. Yeah, I've been quite open about the fact that I've had problems with mental illness for most of my adult life. Seeing it turn up as a joke, as the sort of funny madman or whatever, yeah, it sort of offends and hurts me in a way that few things can. How about you, Paul? I'm not sure there's any topic that I would feel is out of bounds, personally. Um, and I don't say that as, as a thing of pride particularly, but... There's nothing I think, left to shock you. Well, no, I, I, can, I can be shocked, just the same as anybody. But I don't think there's any one particular topic that I would put above others. I mean, it, it depends how they're presented. I mean, I've, I've found myself shocked by some things that have happened in, in games. But it tends to be things that people say that I feel, you know, that they actually mean. So if they actually say something that's racist or sexist or... Um, you know, they they display that intent, and I feel they're kind of actually enjoying it and reveling in it. Then, you know, I just feel that's really distasteful. It's very yeah. rare, but I have experienced it like once or twice, and you know, it just makes you think I don't really want to be with this group of people. But that's not unique to being in a game. That's like, you know, that could be sat round with some people in a pub or something, and somebody says something like that. But as to certain topics, not really. What about? I mean, we've all had material published. Have we had work uh, either censored or redirected because of things we've tried to insert into scenarios or campaigns? I think, yeah, the short answer there is yes. Indeed. I, in, fa I think in, fact, in fact, I can think of one particular example where I censored some of Matt's work. Yes, that's the one where I'm nodding at. Oh, yeah, all right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. well, so no, we've censored each other. Yeah, I mean, if you want to talk about that. Yeah, um, I tried to come up with a particular uh, particular moment where I wanted something shocking. I wanted it particularly to be a moral, uh, really ethical problem that the players had to face. And there's leading up to this um, in the uh, in the story that you've potentially, as the player characters, you've rescued um, a woman from a particularly horrible um, horrible situation. And then the end of the uh, the end of the scenario campaign um, has you forced to say. It's either her or something far worse is going to happen, um, handing them over to a deep one colony because they've said they want this girl. Um, as, and it's, as, as breeding stock. Yes, specifically that it's made reference to the fact that she will be... Uh, but the, word, the R word isn't ever used, but always in the text referred to it as breeding stock that they would be used to help ushering the new generation of deep ones and so on and so forth. Yeah, and, and when I read this, I, 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 I was... It wasn't like there was a graphic rape scene in there, but yeah, I just, 
I don't know. I got to that stage and I thought, you know, it, that, that's there as the default option. It's probably going to happen in the game. And I thought, if I were playing this game, and I know, you know, a lot of other people I know, if they had this, this situation come up, um, that it would probably ruin the game for them. So yeah, if I remember correctly, I didn't ask you to take it out. I just asked you to not put it in as mm-hmm. the default option and just put a note to the keeper. You know, if your group is comfortable with sub, sub, such subjects, you know, you can have it mm-hmm. in there, but, you know, here's how to downplay it. Yeah, there's there were other options potentially if they felt it was too um, too dark an ending. Because the way I'd, personally, when I was a little bit surprised that it came back were with your commentary on there, because the way I'd envisioned it was essentially a bit like a prisoner exchange. That it was just you're handing over someone to the enemy, but without that kind of yeah, obviously text in the forefront because it was something that was going to happen a long way off screen. But, mm. but the players will still know the implications of it. But presumably yeah. the players there have got a choice. Do they give this woman over to the oh, deep yeah. ones? Yeah, in some or cases, do they do something else? And presumably they're, you know, if they felt that strongly, they'd take the other option, right? Yeah, in, in some cases they could potentially not have the woman to, um, to hand them over. They could have no, killed no, but if they have got the woman... Yeah. And they are, in, and they have got that di- moral dilemma. Then they've they've got two cho- two options, yeah. Yeah, um, there's, and in the end, I put in a quite long sidebar. Otherwise, to explore other options, um, potentially, uh, if you enter into a social conflict with them, can you convince them to say no that this is not going to happen? Um, saying maybe she's already dead, maybe she's fled, they haven't got any um, chance of getting her back, or maybe even using a more crass or overplayed trope of like a blood sacrifice, for example, something that just symbolically seals the deal between the two groups, that there were a whole raft of different options that they could explore. And any other scenarios that we've had um, adjusted or put back to us? And I think we're not going to talk specifics here, but in general. Actually, I will talk about a specific scenario, but I won't give all of the details. Yeah, I actually wrote Helen, Texas, which was... A scenario I had published in the Stygian Fox collection, uh, The Things We Leave Behind. And that scenario was actually written for a different publisher originally. And the publisher, they liked the scenario. They they thought it was a good one. But they actually rejected it because some of the subject matter in it was too extreme for for what their, their comfort levels and their publishing guidelines were at the time. And that was a measure of the to do with religion and blasphemy. It was a combination of things. So I mean, no, this isn't giving any real spoilers away for the scenario, but the backdrop of the scenario is based in the very real thing in the US of hell houses. So the, this is a thing that's come out of the evangelical movement, where at Halloween they will put on these, you know, sort of Halloween haunted house type things. But the goal of them is something different. They're there to evangelise. They're there to show people what happens you know as a result of their sins and you know coming out of the evangelical movement these the you know the things that they're showing and depicting are quite often at, at odds with particularly mainstream european mores and you know, I, i'd say certainly the you know the the mores of of a lot of people in the us so you know it's it's you know an absolute given for example that homosexuality is a sin that you know abortion is the worst possible thing so what sort of things might you encounter in one of these hell houses about homosexuality for example and so yeah I, I i did a bit of research on this and i had some some help from matt's wife tiffany on this mm-hmm. as well I, I watched this documentary called hell house which i I highly recommend, which you know is about the, the the setup and the operation of a hell house. And I remember, you know, for example, 
there, there was one particular room in it. It was about homosexuality, and you know, obviously the you know, it, it was a given that as you know, as soon as you were gay, you were going to contract AIDS. That you know, you were going to you know, your, your family and all the righteous Christians around you would either you know pray for you or shun you because you know you're a deviant. Uh, and you know, it, it was all sort of leading up to you know the chance of this person dying of AIDS on his deathbed. You know, potentially having a you know a deathbed conversion and accepting Christ and leaving the sin of him homosexuality behind him and choosing not to and therefore being dragged by demons down to hell yeah and that would be portrayed in one of these rooms in yeah the house. exactly so like the idea sort of, like, sort of dying character in a bed or yeah so the idea is that each one of these rooms is a sort of mini play a tableau i mean there's a set and there's actors it sounds very medieval this. kind of passion play kind of thing pretty much yeah and you, and you just walk through these houses one room after another seeing all these individual tableaus and then at the end you go off and you see that you, you're given two choices. You, you can either go into heaven or hell. And, you know, there's a hell room where you see a lot of the actors from the, you know, the, the, the scenes you've seen before being tortured by demons and, and suffering for their sins. And uh, or if you go out into, into heaven, you walk out into a, um, a tent outside where, you know, the evangelists then sort of try to help save you and uh, you know, accept you into the loving arms of Christ. That says something pretty strange about the people that choose to go into the hell room, doesn't it? <laughs> to see, you know, how all these people are being tortured and, you know, prodded with forks. And yeah, yes. It's better, than, it's better than having Ned Flanders evangelise at you, that's all I can say. <laughs> but, you know, th- this scenario ended up being rejected, I mean, partly because of the depiction of religion, but mostly because of the content of these rooms. And the irony is that I didn't actually make any of this stuff up. I used examples from of rooms from real hell houses. So... The idea was that the things that you know, evangelical Christians in the U.S. at the moment, or at least you know, a, a small subset, uh, yeah, the, the more extreme ones, are using to try to convert people is too extreme for a horror game like Call of Cthulhu. So we've talked a lot about the, the subjects themselves and how we've potentially used them or avoided them in our own games, but in those instances where we've played games... How have we seen subject matters embraced in a positive way? Hmm. When I first heard about Monster Hearts, that is the first game that I really came across that actually sort of embraces sex in the game. Because, I mean, aside from playing D&D as a, you know, an early teenager and, you know, all that, that, you know, I'll leave that to your imagination... (laughs) But some of the player characters did end up having children and, you know, I think it was a way of um, kind of propagating their, their PCs in some way. Um, Leveling up in a different fashion. Yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, Monster Hearts it actually sort of brought the sex into the, into the game, as we see in so many TV shows, you know, that the relationships and sexual relationships are a big part of fiction. You know, if we look from Buffy to, to any of the, you know, more modern shows on TV... Uh, and it doesn't have to be explicit on screen. It is a factor in the game. Yeah, in fact, I mean, in the games of Monster Hearts I've played and run, the sex is very rarely explicit. The last campaign of it I ran at the club was probably, you know, the most sex-packed game I've seen in Monster Hearts. I mean, you know, everyone really embraced that side of things and the characters were basically screwing everything that moved. But is that because they just got out of playing Alpha Blue? <laughs> no, this was before Alpha okay. Blue. <laughs> so, yeah, just as an aside, yeah, Alpha Blue is another very sexually intensive game. 
uh, you know, set on a, a a space station that is sort of Las Vegas in space with a lot of smutty stuff going on. Is that on. intentionally comedic, Alpha Blue? Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. But Monster Heart's not. Yeah, no, no. But, I mean, that said, you know, the, the approach in this last very sort of sexually intense game that I played was much more lighthearted. And, and though we hadn't had an explicit Lions and Veils discussion, there was generally a veil drawn over sex scenes when they happened. It's just that they were incredibly frequent. So you spent all the time with the curtain flapping down across the screen. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. But on the other hand, I did play a game at the club a while back. Um, our friend Neil uh, ran a game of Smallville, or at least using the Smallville game engine, to run a game uh, that was set in Rome around uh, the period of Nero's rule. And he said up front that he wanted uh, you know, the, the sex to be on screen. That um, I, th- I think we had a little discussion beforehand about why we were so willing to embrace violence in games but not sex. So he wanted to make this a, a very explicit game. And so as a result, when sex scenes came up, I, you know, we, we didn't sort of play through them in a you know, sort of round-by-round round mechanical the way, the way you would have a fight scene. But you know, there was a lot more narration that went into them. The mechanics for sex in the same way as a fight scene would be quite remarkable yes yeah. but, but i mean we, we joke about it but i mean this is actually a really interesting thing to me why is it that we are so happy to you know describe any amount of gore for example matt i mean you were talking about the fact that you don't like sex in games it's very uncomfortable but the one sort of sexual thing that you positively embraced in one of your games there was someone getting himself off by rubbing himself up against razor blades and cutting all his skin off and that being an orgasmic thing that was a sexual act for him that as a sexual act is okay in one of your games, but someone having you know, straight sex for the pleasure of it, that's beyond the, the pale? Mainly because I worry about what it could potentially go south with the wrong people. That it could hit a, um, a triggery button for someone at the table, and I'm not prepared to go down that, um, down that route. Whereas, using that cult example, that was blatantly something else other than sex. It was the same emotional. Well, it was the same emotional it wasn't, feeling. Was it? I mean, the way you described it, that was a sexual act. But there wasn't a partner involved. It was just the single person involved, and it was a quite a for any onlooker was quite a horrific thing. Lots of blood, lots of uh, torn flesh. It it didn't stray into that area it, where I'd be remarkably uncomfortable that something felt, could go wrong. So it felt very removed for you, albeit yes. one could argue it was a sexual act. Yeah. I think. But I mean, I'm I, reading mm-hmm. that Matt felt that was very removed. Yeah, it was. There was enough disconnect that it did not feel the same thing. But I mean, how about you, Paul? Are you? But yeah, are you comfortable with the idea of? I, I'm, I'm not talking about you know absolute pornography, but of not pulling that veil over a sex scene in a, a, a game. Um. And if not, why not? Yeah, I don't know. It's a weird one. I guess the, I guess it's a social thing, and you know, describing sexual acts graphically in the game just would feel very uncomfortable. But you know, describing someone having their innards pulled out yeah. or having their eyes gouged out or just flayed alive—that's okay. Yeah. But a penis entering a vagina—that's crossing a line. Why is that? I don't know. Yeah, um, I know it's something I struggle I mean, with as well. We would, I mean, I guess just we have our own ideas of what's socially acceptable, and you know, I, I take it I, when we're talking about this, I kind of extend it to think, well, what about outside of a game? And you know, if if I was describing some 
incident to somebody or describing a film, then I might well describe to some degree, you know, violent scenes. But I don't think I'd go into the same detail with sexual scenes because um, I think a discussion of sex, I don't know, it's, it tends to be a very... Intimate? Very private. intimate, oh. private. Um, and as a rule, I'm not somebody that has those discussions with other people very much. Yeah. I, and I must admit, yeah, I, I've been deliberately provocative here. But, yeah, I, I'm, I'm pretty much the same. I'm much more comfortable with violence than sex in games. You know, I don't avoid it in the same way that Matt does. And, you know, I certainly have run, you know, as I say, very sexual games of Monster Hearts. And you know, it's come into other games. But, um, yeah, it, it says, I think, something about, you know, gamers, society in general, the media we consume, the fact that we are so much more comfortable with extreme violence than we are with even, you know, healthy, normal sex. And I, I don't think it says anything good about us. Well, I would draw a line there and say comfortable with it in mixed company. Well, and by that, I mean in company. Yes. Um, we're probably, you know, we're, we're quite okay with sex in what we would feel is an appropriate place, but, you know, sat around in the living room with a bunch of our mates, that's quite oh, different. Oh, yeah, but, but I'm, I'm not challenging that. What, what I'm going to is the why. Mm. And, yeah, I, I, I certainly accept what you say about it being a private, intimate thing, but, you know, it, it's the fact that it is that taboo, the fact that, you know, we can only see it in that way. Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't think it's healthy. I must admit, I'll be quite more happy bashing someone's ba uh, brains in with a baseball bat than I'll be trying to um, trying to pull a girl at a bar. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> Again, that doesn't say anything healthy, man. <laughs> <laughs> Just a statement of fact. What can I say? I mean, I guess we've all had. This is going to sound a bit weird. More experience of sex than of violence. Um, yes. You know, none of us have lived through a war. Um, well, we've talked about you know, our experience of actual fights and so on before, and whilst they're notable, they're they're very limited. Yes, um, you know, because you know, I consider what it would be like to. I mean, it's unimaginable to actually be on a battlefield. You know, whether it be a modern day one with guns and explosives, or a medieval one with swords and armor, or lack of armor, and to actually, you know, to be there as it's happening, or indeed to be there in the aftermath, and whether that would change how you feel towards these things i don't know but mm. certainly you know the, this discussion is has made me all the more interested in thinking whether there is you know some way that we can incorporate you know sex in into you know may, maybe some of the work that we do you know i'm saying we you know but <laughs> but potentially that you know broach sexual subjects in a way that isn't prurient that isn't ridiculous that isn't um offensive but you know, is is as na as natural a part of the game as as you know anything else. I don't really feel a desire to do that. Okay. I mean, I think it works personally. I think it works well in Monster Hearts in yeah. the games that I've played. In most of the games that I've played, I felt it's it's played a role in the same way that you know I'll, I'll use Buffy as an example because you know it's, it's well known. But in the first game that I played, somebody was sort of saying you know that that 
the reason for the the sex moves in Monster Hearts is when your player character has a sexual encounter with another player character. There's actually uh, has a rules mechanic that it kind of changes your character in some way. Yeah, there are and consequences. They were, to they were sex. likening that yeah. to um, you know when um, Buffy and Angel first have sex and the way it sort of triggers his dark side. And you know this is kind of reflected in the mechanics of, of Monster Hearts. So it's it's a good way of the sexual relationships having a kind of narrative effect in the story and they're not just there for kind of gratuitous reasons yes in that way they work well so another game that has come up over the last few years and one that has reached out beyond well beyond the role-playing game community i mean i was i was teaching um a child and i visit their house and there's a box of Cards Against Humanity on the side. And I was like, ooh, I didn't know whether to mention it or not. But it's like, <laughs> do I mention this at the point? Um, so, so for the handful of listeners out there who haven't encountered Cards Against Humanity, uh, Matt, do you want to explain what it is? It's fun. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, the, ser- the serious answer is that at its core, it's essentially like apples to apples. The uh, for, for our listeners who haven't played Apples to Apples, yeah, I, I was about to explain what this fucking game is, Matt. I was about to explain that. <laughs> uh, you have a black card and a st- series of black cards and an even bigger stack of white cards. The black cards, you have a players, players sat around, usually around a table or in a circle and so on. One player will reach over, pick up a black card and read the statement or question that's on there. The statement might have a blank in there, like uh, one of the example cards in there is, uh, I've got 99 problems, but blank ain't one of them. Or another one would be, a question would be, what do white people like? Question mark. You then have all the other players look through their hand of white cards that contain just random non-sequitur statements uh, of yeah. varying levels of uh, social acceptableness that they then use to answer the question or fill the blank. And I still think it was one of the funniest moments when I took Paul five minutes to read out the combination of cards. I've got 99 problems, but getting my dick stuck in a Chinese finger trap with the dick ain't one of them. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I mean, some of these cards, and, you know, I've I've played it a couple of times and and I had a great time playing it. But some of the things on these cards, which you started to allude to there, are... You know, they go to extremes. So yeah. do, do you want to just regale us with a few of the, the things that are on some of these white cards? Uh, some, of the, some of the ones or even combinations that I've seen used. Yeah, Things like uh, some of the white cards might be the, the KKK or Praying the Gay Away, the white half of Barack Obama, uh, or Lance Armstrong's missing testicle, um, the cancerous corpse of Jade Goody, uh, Madeleine McCann. There's a whole ray of these cards that touch on... Such on such really, and they've clearly stuff. purposefully gone for the most kind of provocative things that they can yeah. come up and, with, and, and some of them are just downright sexist, racist, homophobic, and uh, yeah, the the I guess the idea is that you're playing them with a group of friends, and you're bringing these elements in in such a way that you're perhaps diffusing the offensiveness through comedy and certainly there are any number of comedians out there who you know who do stuff like that i mean you know comedians like jerry sadovitz and frankie boyle have built entire careers on it i feel comfortable enough playing it with friends who who i know but i wouldn't really want to go and play that with a bunch of people i didn't know yeah. you know it's i don't know it's it's it, i find it a 
bit of a questionable one. Yeah, I, I've I've played it about four or five times now, and yeah, I enjoyed it the first time I played it. I mean, it was ludicrous enough. It was you know silly. There were a couple of times where combinations of cards came up, and you know other people were laughing, and I was just sort of sitting there thinking, actually, no, that really doesn't work for me, and I you know I don't like the fact that everyone's laughing at that. But yeah, I, I won't condemn other people for doing that. There are probably things that make me laugh that would horrify the two of you. That's almost <laughs> begging for an example. Wait, wait, you realise that. Wait, 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 we'll experiment with that later. Um, but <laughs> <Will we now? laughs> um, but I don't know. After having played it a few times, I've come to the conclusion that I really don't like it. I mean, there's you know, a, a lowest common denominator aspect to it that there's no real creativity involved in coming up with with these combinations. It is largely luck. I mean, you know, so sometimes, yeah, have just the right card for something that, that will, you know, get an, a fantastic reaction at the table, and that's great. But you didn't make that happen. I don't know. I mean, some of the things in there, some of the ways in which it provokes, I don't know, just, just don't work for me. I, d I don't think I'm a particularly prudish person, but I, I, I don't know. I, it's, th this one does sometimes cross a line for me. Mm. I, I think more than anything else, it's the racism in there. There is a fair amount of racist cards. Yeah. And yeah, I, I, when I'm sitting around, particularly with a group of all white friends, you know, laughing over racist jokes, yeah, I, I, that makes me feel like a worse person. Yeah, the whole thing about the bigger, blacker box and so on, I don't know, it seems a bit... The biggest, blackest box right. with a card hidden in the lid. Which is quite a cool concept, but mm -hmm. yeah, I don't know. It's a bit... I think it was mainly because the box was black. That was all it was. It wasn't a racist comment. Well, no, but but it was a reference to, you know, uh, one of the cards in there, one of the black cards, which is the big black cock. Well, the white card, ironically. Oh, sorry. But yeah. Yes. <laughs> But yeah, there's the big, um, a big black cock, a bigger blacker cock, the biggest blackest cock, things, things like that. And yeah, yeah it, it is. I mean, it is very difficult to you know, use those in a way that isn't just screamingly racist. And yeah, I, yes, I mean, y y you may get some good laughs out of that. Um, and I, I don't know, it just, it just doesn't work for me. There is a similar story that a friend of mine has with a very different game. Um, a game that Scott's also described as 10 minutes of fun packed into an hour. Um, bang. Oh, God. But uh, one of the cards in there is Indian Attack. Now, one of Tiff's friends who she used to play with back in the States is of Native, uh, Native American descent. And whenever played the game, insisted you take that card out. So even so, it can, stuff can be quite true in other games as well. Hmm. Well, I guess that raises the point that if somebody says they don't like it, then you kind of, you don't argue about it. You just take it out. Yeah. Or you don't play that game. Yes. But you don't debate it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, particularly in a situation like that where, you know, it was a Native American person saying that they found that, you know, upsetting because of the historical context. You know, I as a white person am not going to turn around and start arguing and telling them what racism is. We've talked for an awful long time about extremes. It's obviously a major topic, but let's wrap things up with our last thoughts on what we think of extreme subjects in gaming. I think in general, in the past, I've kind of been attracted to extremes. So I think that's always appealed to me, and maybe that's a part of the appeal of horror films, really. 
I was just going to say that when you said that, really? God, the look of glee that just flashed across your face or something that the microphone probably wouldn't pick up. <laughs> <laughs> These things, are they extreme when you enjoy them and are happy for them to be there? Yeah, I mean, that's actually a very good point. I've always been, as a lifelong horror fan, attracted to, you know, gore and blood and guts and, you know, really nasty ideas and, and fictitious sadism in films and stuff like that. I mean, they, you know, they, they, this stuff fires my imagination, um, you know, as much as it repels me in real life. So there's, uh, there's a line, isn't there? Yeah. That, that we enjoy it, we enjoy it, we enjoy it, we reach that line, overstep that mark, whatever it might be, and it's quite flexible. And suddenly it's like, no, that was just like too much. I, for me, I, yeah, I think the real dividing line for me, I mean, this applies probably more to media than games, is the point at which it becomes real. I, I will watch almost anything uh, that is depicted fictionally. Yeah, I've given a few counterexamples, um, but I, I will watch most things that, you know, don't involve graphic rape. Um, but... Uh, as soon as that becomes real, you know, like the, like the example of Cannibal Holocaust, the, you know, that, that's the point at which you know, it's definitely gone too far for me. Mm. I'd say that it's using extreme matter. You have to use it, I'd say, at the right time and the right place. That it's a powerful weapon in your arsenal as a GM to whip out and th um, to use at the game table. But key thing tastefully make sure that you don't upset anyone by all means scare them by all means horrify them well, yes but actually, don't... actually i'm going to challenge you on that really? you're, you're used to the word tastefully how do you portray extremes tastefully surely surely they're antithetical i mean do you mean not overstepping yeah not mark, not really? to not overstep the mark to do it maybe respectfully is probably more of an accurate yes. word okay yeah um yeah that's just maybe poor choice of wording but not the intent behind it yeah, to, to do it in a respectable fashion, to do it in a in a method that, like I say, isn't going to dis dis uh, disgust anyone. Yeah, and, and so much of the time that depends on who you're playing with. I mean, there are things that I know, you know, will happen in games that I play with certain friends, which would cross a line that I'd never, ever, you know, have at a, a convention game, for example. Just because I know with those people that they can cope with it, they're, you know, more often than not, they're the ones bringing that unpleasantness in there. And everyone at the table is finding that fun. With a different group of players, that would be so far over the line, it's not true. The good friends of Jackson Elias now have a Patreon page. Think of it as an electronic donation box to help with the running costs of the show. The podcast will remain free and donations are entirely voluntary. Follow the Patreon link on blasphemoustomes.com. Thanks for listening. It is once again that part of the episode where we thank those wonderful, generous people who have given us money via Patreon. The money you give us pays for our bandwidth costs, our general running costs, and the, the show just wouldn't happen without that. So thank you very much to all of you. And we have someone new to thank this week as well. Yeah, big thanks to Wesley Teal. Cheers, Wesley. Yes, cheers, Wesley. Thank Gee. you very much. Thank you very much, Wesley. Cheers. Yes, and recently we've come into credit on our um, accounts, so we've got uh, <laughs> we've got uh, we're in the black, and we can now funnel that money towards 
issue two of the fanzine The Blasphemous Tome, which will be going out to backers hopefully quite soon. And if you want to climb on board with the Patreon backership, then um, please do. So I understand we've had some comments about our previous episode online. Yes, about the Pontypool episode we did back in, all the way back in episode 96. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> and we've actually got a listener who comes from Pontypool in Canada. Yeah, Ian McLean posted on Google Plus uh, telling us that Pontypool doesn't actually have a radio station. So the whole film is a lie. Can we not believe anything that is presented to us in that? There, there goes realism. Who the hell? Who the hell fucking researched this thing and didn't go in and didn't get a basic detail like that right? Come on. Or maybe there's a secret radio station that he doesn't know about. But it's after the bomb dropped. There's nothing left. <laughs> But despite this glaring inaccuracy, it does turn out that he's quite a fan of of Tony Burgess and the books upon which Pontypool is based. He he points out that it is actually uh, uh, a thematic trilogy, uh, The Hillmouths of Budley, Pontypool Changes Everything, and uh, Caesarea, which I've not even heard of. And, yeah, he, he recommends them all, saying that they're filled with semiotic gymnastics, uh, excellent I, descriptions of the actual landscape, and some truly horrific imagery. I love that our listeners write such eloquent posts. Yeah, semiotic gymnastics. We have a, we have a high <laughs> class of listenership. We do. Yeah. yeah. Yes, yeah. they're smarter than we are. Yeah. <laughs> we should be listening to them. <laughs> well, we are. We are, Scott. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Um, point and I, proved. Point. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we have—I think we have another listener, don't we? Um, is it Tony Parry, who lives near the Pontypool in Wales? Yeah. So apparently, apparently, our listenership is focused around places called Pontypool. <laughs> Straddling the line between reality but, and fiction. To be fair, I guess if somebody wrote a trilogy of books about Buckingham, I'd probably read those. So I doubt if they'd be as interesting as this. Yeah, Given my journalism hmm. uh, tutor at Buckingham Uni said that Buckingham was the land of the newly wed and the nearly dead, there's not that much to write about. Hey, hold on, which category do I fit into? <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> yeah. I, I, how long ago did you get married, Paul? 27 years. Yeah. That's not that new. <laughs> <laughs> But Ian carries on, he, he says, one of my favourite bits comes from Pontypool, where a pair of infected bite each other on the mouths, lock their teeth, and proceed to spasmodically shake their heads violently until they've mutually snapped each other's necks. Ew. Who says romance is dead? Scott's <laughs> going to reuse that in a game. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> you know like, he's going to... In a game, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Ew. That really gives my mouth a really weird and horribly uh, horrible feeling. It's Ugh. it's weird though that the most unnerving aspect of that to me is the locking of the teeth. Mm. Nothing else. Yeah, yeah. Mm. <laughs> anyway, a less body horror, uh, body horror inspired uh, comment came from another one of our listeners, uh, Trevor Hurst, who came up with quite an interesting proposition on this. Yeah, he came up with a very interesting reading. Um, we won't go, you know, read the full post out because it's quite a long one. If you're interested in seeing this in depth, and I do recommend it, he posted this on our Google Plus community, and I, I don't know what it is, if it's something peculiar about Google Plus, but all of the in-depth discussion we have on our episodes seems to be on there. Hmm. Um, so, I mean, if you are interested in, in, you know, talking through some of these things with other listeners or seeing what they have to say, then, you know, please do join the community if you haven't already. It does seem to be something that I remember hearing about that's kind of more a, tr- a 
quality of Google Plus over Facebook is that you do tend to find longer posts, more in-depth discussion on there than you do on the, um, the big book of faces. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Trevor's reading of it is that Pontypool, at least to him, is a critique of the poor or irresponsible use of mass media. The fact that it um, overamps emotions, that it, it divides people, that it creates controversy where there isn't controversy, and inspires all these negative emotions, acting like a virus going around infecting people's minds. Uh, and that he believes that the 24-hour news cycle, particularly in the US, has has amplified this even more. Yeah, I, I, I have no idea whether this is something particularly that Tony Burgess had in mind. But, yeah, dear God, it fits. Well, certainly in the, the previous year of 2016, the, uh, the Pontypool virus seems stronger than ever, I would say, if we're talking about sort of um, the news cycle infecting people's minds. Mm. I mean, fake news. Well, yes, actually, yeah. The whole sort of um, issue of, you know, fake news, as it's become known, yeah. seems very much to fit in with that kind of thing. Personally, I don't particularly like the description fake news. I, I don't see that there's anything wrong with just calling it propaganda. <laughs> yeah, I suppose the distinction is that, that people are putting it... I mean, yes, it's propaganda. Um, and what it, yeah, I suppose propaganda, we kind of look back on historically to sort of think, yes, that was propaganda put out by the, the Nazis or, or whoever. Um, and it's kind of identifiable. Um, but perhaps at the time it isn't, I suppose. Well, I suppose one of the differences now is the fact that there are some people who are completely divorced from the uh, political instincts that drive propaganda who are doing this purely for the money. I, I, I saw a fascinating interview the other day with uh, someone in the US who is actually politically fairly liberal-leaning. Uh, he's a long-time Democrat voter, but worked out there was a lot of money in creating fake news sites and, and these really outrageous stories that tended to be um, repeated around facebook well they draw a lot of clicks yeah yeah, yeah. and and yeah he reckoned he was making somewhere between i think 10 to thirty thousand dollars a month from advertising just by creating these completely spurious news stories well i recommend the film um hypernormalization oh right uh, that's yes. um put out Ad by adam, adam curtis adam curtis yes yeah uh, which is on bbc iplayer now and it talks very much about that okay I was a little bit disappointed to hear, though, that apparently the German release of the DVD does not have quite such a flowery and paragraph-long title as we initially thought. No, it's just Pontypool Radio Zombie. Which, yeah, as subtitles go, is still a pretty good one. Yeah, it is, yeah. And that correction came to us from the, the, someone who uses the wonderful handle Suboptimal Von Meer. And if you want to catch up with us on social media, you can find us, as Scott said, on uh, Google+. As the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, you can find us on Facebook under the same name, and you can find us on Twitter as the Good Friends of JE. We also have a contact form on the website which sends us emails. So after our discussion about extremes in games, is there anything you'd do different now when it comes to running your next game? Going back to very near the start of our discussion, one thing I'm, I definitely want to experiment with now is using that X card. Yeah, I'm kind of intrigued by that as well. After discussing as we have, and that that is probably I, I might be tempted to do so, but 
again, part of the worry there is that it's almost like that flag that you mentioned earlier, that it's, well, if if it's you, you almost feel bad about pulling uh, putting the card up, that it then means that you're almost revealing a bit too much of yourself as to something and maybe you don't want well, this. Well, I mean, I kind of feel that, I mean, I guess it's different different for different people, but I kind of feel that if there's that unwritten thing that you can just touch that card or hold that card up and there's a kind of a, a consensus that okay we all know what that means and we're not going to discuss it that maybe that's just easier sometimes a physical act is easier than actually saying something out loud but i think it's still significant that it's an american invention that you know i, I think this is this is a cultural thing and i think in our case british reserve probably works against us here that you know we're I think we're less disposed as a culture to making a fuss. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm. I'd, I'd be interested to have it there, even if nobody uses it, and just see how that how people feel about that. It's kind of like a emergency brake on the train. You, you know, you know it's there, but yeah, you know, rarely gets used. I've been waiting for an exciting time to try and use that. Thing. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, that wraps up our discussion of extremes in gaming. So until next time, it's a good night from me. Cheerio from me. And farewell from me. Hello. Blasphemous Tomes.com. Mm-hmm.